L'impérialisme. Abba. Le néocolonialisme. Abba. Le néolibéralisme. Abba. Les 1% qui nous espient. Abba. La patrie ou la mort. Nous vaincrons. Alright, revolutionary greetings comrades. Welcome to yet another episode of the Fourth Generation, a podcast that aims to equip you with the right ideological tools to understand and change politics on the African continent. I'm your host Olemo Gordon Brand, and today I'm joined by two comrades and compatriots in the struggle for the emancipation of Africa, Mr. Toma Lesafr, hello, and Siabonga Michelle Adebe from South Africa. Today we'll be trying to unpack and look at the legacy of the man Thomas Sankara. And I'll start with a quote that I read recently in an article. It said, it wasn't the assassination of Sankara that dealt a huge blow to the African continent, but the assassination of his memory. And today we are trying to see how we can re-articulate some of his policies, re-articulate some of his ideals, and reenact them for the 21st century to actually shape and direct leadership that can revolutionize and change politics on the African continent. The facilitator for today's discussion will be Mr. Toma. And yes, Mr. Toma, do you want to take us and give us um, a brief background of who the man Thomas Sankara was? Thank you, uh, Mr. Olemo. So I, I would say I would say that Sankara. What's what's the most impressive with Sankara? It's it's really about the fact that we still uh, hear about what he's have to say until today. Like it still can influence a generation that is born in 21st century when he was ruling in 20th century long time ago. And and that's that's something that's actually that says about like the experience and the radicality of the experience that the man tried. Uh, we haven't seen until uh, until now, 40 years after, uh, similar leaders in the continent. So like my first question would be really like about like how and why do we still speak about him, Siabonga? What do you think? I think that they are presidents then there's Sankara. I think he he set the bar way too high and he did something that uh, he did something that we didn't see a lot in the African continent at that time. We see a young man coming into power and within four years he does something that Presidents within 40 years could not even dream of doing. And I think that is one of the reasons why we still remember him on the continent. And when we even look at some of his policies, we look at the impact that he had in two weeks, two weeks operating a policy. You just know how impactful, you just know how dynamic of a leader Sankara is. Um, he wasn't a puppet. He... He wasn't ideologically confused. He didn't cook up an ideological compaction. He was very clear. He was a man of the people, by the people, for the people. And you were never confused about who is serving Sankara. You're right. Like, it seems like it was, it was really a, a man that tried different things, that tried new things. And yeah. I think what surprised people until today is also how, how different he was in his, in his politics, how different he was in his approach, right? Mm -hmm. The thing is, he was a, he was a really young leader. He took power at 32 years old, mm -hmm. but he, he don't really have like a, a background that we would expect. He took power as a, as a military, uh, he made a coup d'etat. So everything was starting like not so great. Uh, it didn't seem like a story that we will still speak about 40 years later. I think something else that's important to acknowledge about Sankara is that right now in Africa, we're experiencing a leadership crisis. And young people are trying to look back and see who can actually inspire us from the continent as far as leadership is concerned. When you look at Europe, we'll see the likes of Karl Marx. We'll look at all these thinkers, all these radical thinkers that have existed throughout history. But then when we examine the continent, there are very few leaders whom we can look to for an example for leadership. And I think this is some of the reasons why young people today are actually looking up to Thomas Sankara, a leader who was able to transform his country within only four years. And uh, counter-revolutionary forces eventually took him out in 87. But what he managed to achieve, as Sia said, 
was something that had never been seen anywhere on the African continent and anywhere else in the world for that matter. So like as a as a young man Sankara grew up in Old Volta. Old Volta was the colonial name given by the French. And when the French like gave back power uh, to 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 the people of of Old Volta, what they really did was to install like a new form of colonialism that would be known later on as neocolonialism. Neocolonialism would be a form of a of a little uh, local class that would work on the interests of of bigger uh, bigger imperialist class in the Europeans. Uh, markets. Thomas Sankara, Thomas Sankara grew up as a, as a military. He had a, he had strong discipline. He was known really, really young. Um, do you know guys what, what, how old were you when he started to be known in his own country? I can imagine 19, our age even? 18, 19, yeah. 20, 20. Yeah, he was 20 years old. Do you know, do you know what he did at 20 years old that no one else could do at his time? Take us through it, Mr. Thomas. Surprise us. <laughs> it was the war on 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 the poor. That's how it was called, like la guerre des pauvres in in French. Mm. Um, Mali started to attack Burkina Faso um, for like a small a small stripe of territory in, in uh, between the two countries that Mali said was was their own when uh, Burkina Faso uh, said it was it was uh, their own um, part of the land. And the Malian army was really, really stronger than the Burkina Faso army. They would fight in December in the desert. And the Malian army took possessions of that stripe of land uh, in Burkina Faso. Um, so it was like for the pride, you can imagine the pride of the of Voltaic people. It was it was quite bad. Um, what bring back the, bring back the pride was, uh, the intervention of Sankara as the time, a small, um, a commandant of a, of a, of a battalion of a piece of the army. He managed to break the line of the Malian's army and to go straight to Mali and to occupy some part of Malian land, which helped negotiation between the two countries because now the Malians, the, the Malians are occupied Burkina Faso, but Sankara is occupying Mali as well. So he re-equalized like the balance of power, even if we had less um, munitions, less soldiers, but he had a he had a greater strategy here. So that's really something that made him famous in his in his own country uh, at, from the age of twenty. Mm. So looking at this, looking at this, the government start to start to think that he has an incredible man on on his hand, and they gave him a they gave him a, another bataillon. I'm not sure, but the English for bataillon, if bataillon, uh, yes, if if anyone can help me here, it's but he had a, he had to train men, he had to train men uh, of the Burkina Faso army in the north of the country. So he's, uh, he was something of a, already of a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> At 20 uh, years old, hey? I'm a quite of a, of a young age. Um, but like it's at, at, at that time yet he's not in power, but he's known in, he's known as in country, um, uh, he's known as a, as a nationalist hero. Um, and he will, he will use that to, to, to build, uh, to build his positions in the army. And slowly but surely, uh, touch, uh, touch upon, touch upon governance, where would be, uh, named, uh, prime minister and then minister of information first and then prime minister and take, uh, take over by the president of the time that would be quite scared of him. Um, so when, when, when you realize that the situation will not be changed by traditional, uh, traditional politics, he decided to, uh, to take power mm. with some military friends, uh, especially like four, four of them that follow the same idea. And I would say, like, this is where the real story of Sankara begin. This is where he uh, will think of the situation in a, in a total different perspective. Um, Siabongo, maybe you can tell us um, what was what was in the earliest day of Sankara, like uh, the policies that he did, and how like did he start to 
be seen as, as so different from, from his contemporary leader. You know, when I was looking at his domestic policies, I was actually quite shocked, like we said. All of this in four years. He launched an umbrella, um, an umbrella campaign called the Commando Campaign. And within that, he had so many other campaigns that were part of nation building, that were part of um, developing the country. And he actually moved his country forward. And right before um, I get into the domestic policies, we need to understand that at this time, Sankara is faced with a challenge that a lot of post-independent leaders in Africa have. One, he has about more than 90% illiteracy rate among his population. He has huge numbers of people um, as peasants in the rural areas. And there's sort of a, a distance between the rural areas and the, and the people in the town. He also has an issue of labor moving from Burkina Faso to Guadalupe to go work in the cocoa farms. And then he's stuck with people... Is only stuck with infrastructure that is only existent to transport labor from Burkina Faso to another country. So he comes in as a leader. He has to sort of reshape that, that colonial, that colonial concept of taking labor and taking, um, goods outside of the country to go develop another nation elsewhere. And he's coming, he's redeveloping everything. And I think one, one element of the commando project is the Battle of the Rail. He named it the Battle of the Rail and it started in um, February 1985. And this was basically him building a railway. He realized two things. One, he didn't have enough capital to build a railway. Two, the railway and the roads that existed, like I said, they only connected labor from Burkina Faso to take it out of the country. Now, um, Thomas Sankara realizes that he has to keep things within in order to develop his country. And at this time, the World Bank is telling Sankara, Sankara, you cannot be doing this. It's not economically viable. And because we know that the World Bank has their own agenda sometimes, particularly in 1985, and this man is revolutionary. He's saying, you know what? It's okay. I will find a way to make it work. And he realizes that I have a vast population of people. I have a vast population of peasants. He brings them all together. He mobilizes all of them. And he says, sometimes we don't even need financing. Let's use the finance that we have. And he used the people that he had to build the railway. And the railway did not it was very strategic about it. It did not connect specifically in the capital. He connected rural areas to the capital. It was he, a national project. It was even a national project. He could, young people, volunteers, um, adults, everybody built in. Everybody was all hands on deck and people were building in that project. And it's just interesting to see that even though it didn't um, run all across Burkina Faso, but you could see the power of bringing people together and the power of saying we understand the limitations that we have, but we're going to push the nation forward through commando project yeah you're right uh, you're right yeah. like what's what's fascinating here is is to to see like who does he charge of the development of the country right mm -hmm. most of our leaders today like they go overseas and they try to receive like finance they try to uh, to beg from uh, from big bigger power we think of china we think of european unions what sankara did he said like no no one else is going to develop you you're going to develop yourself you need to develop yourself. If you're waiting for someone else to come to develop, you, it never has happened. Mm -hmm. we, don't, we don't have any example of that in history. So you have to develop yourself. And by by saying that, it was it was not about it was not just about liberating the people. It was also making them build mm -hmm. their own future. And that liberation is is unseen, uh, unprecedented at, at that time, right? Um, I remember like finding some archive uh, of like Afro Americans authors that used to come to uh, to Burkina Faso. Uh, for one of the, what is today considered as one of the greatest legacy of Thomas Sankara, the Fespaco festival that tried to push African culture and especially African cinema. 
So at the time, like you had some people coming to do the Fespaco from all around the world and especially from the black world. And they would go uh, and, and walk on the railroad project. So they would pass one day uh, within all the conference to also go and, and, and pose a railway or make, make sure that the projects go forward. So it was also like a way of inviting people that are present in the territory to don't just exploit the territory or to use it at their advantage, but also to give back to the people. And I think what I like about that particularly is a lot of critics usually say that leaders like Sankara teach people the spirit of dependency. And we see that a lot in African countries where people are dependent on the leader. But Sankara is coming in and saying, like you said, Mr. Timon, nobody's going to do this for you. We're not going to expect French engineers to come here to build roads for us. These roads are ours. They are for our development. And he brings the people in and say, if you want development, you have to put your hands in creating it. And I think um, that is one really revolutionary idea that we find. And these days we find, for example, in Mozambique and many other countries, we have engineers within the country. You have people who are sitting at home, they could use um, some nation building, but you have governments and leaders that bring about um, leaders from elsewhere, that bring about engineers from elsewhere to come build railroads that are for the development of Africa. If the development is truly for the Africans, let the Africans take part in developing their own country. Like that's, that's, that's important that you speak of Mozambique. I wanted to bring that uh, earlier. When we think of Mozambique in 2021, when you think of Lesotho in 2021, when you think of Zimbabwe and Malawi, what do we see? We see the same situation that Sankara had to front in Burkina Faso. The workers, the people that can sell like their forces uh, to, 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 to capital, where do they do, go and do it in Zimbabwe, in Mozambique, in Lesotho? They go here in South Africa. And who do they work for? They work for what some people in South Africa call white monopoly capital. So we can, we can debate the terms and like it or not. But what we know is that since 20 years, the generations, every wealth that is created in this country get back to the hand of really few. And the wealth that is created is highly and, and inherently connected to the capacity of Mozambican workers, of, of Zimbabwean workers or on Lesotho workers to come and reach South Africa, right? The same way, the same way Burkina Bay people had to go in Ivory Coast to find a, to find a better future and work for someone else. At the time, is, is the great power of Ufwet Boni, the neo-colonial uh, pillars of, of West Africa. Uh, today, it's, it's white monopoly capital in South Africa, right? Yeah. So, so as, as you explained, yeah, it's, it's, it is the, the workforce. Sankara realized he has no capital. He cannot call the World Bank to do a railway because the World Bank don't want a railway there. In fact, they denied him. They said, no, what you're saying doesn't make sense. We're not going to do it. Uh, find your own way to do it. In fact, they have their own project that was fulfilling this uh, migratory pass between yes. Ivory Coast and Burkina Faso that Thomas Sankara wanted to, wanted to cut. So what we see uh, is the capacity for Sankara regime to break the pass of dependency, that dependency uh, of European foreign capital, dependency of previous colonial uh, capital to develop his own country. He didn't want to let the development of his own country in the end of foreign people. What you see is a clear cut on the path of dependency. But how, already, how successful was Sankara in uh, breaking that path? I think for a leader who had been in place for just four years, Sankara managed very well to actually create a self dependent, self-defendant, self-sufficient country that was able to produce for itself. Because Sankara believed essentially that uh, we should have local production and we should all be consuming consuming locally made products. You look at the fact that in a certain year in Burkina Faso, within I think 1985, Burkina Faso was already producing uh, 
100% clothes that were 100% made from cotton um, that was manufactured in Burkina Faso, that was um, sold in Burkina Faso, and discouraged people from um, foreign consumption. But also, we need to trust the, 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 the independence and the fact that Sankara actually wanted Burkina Faso not to be attached to foreign aid, because essentially believed that foreign aid was not a necessary precursor for development. He believed that let's look at all the economic forces at play in our economy. We have peasants who do not have access to land. We have women who are not allowed equal participation in the revolution. And he made a very important case that the revolution cannot succeed without the role of women. And we have young people, who's the youth, the youthful population, whose vigor, whose um, hard work could actually be exploited to move um, uh, the, the country forward. And I think Sankara managed very successfully to actually make Burkina Faso less dependent on foreign aid. But I think we also need to trust the idea of dependence on foreign aid. Where did it come from? And this goes back to the question of neocolonialism, neocolonial control. Um, and uh, Kwame Nkrumah wrote something on, on this. He said neocolonialism was the last stage of imperialism. And he said neocolonialism is exercised through economic and monetary means that if someone is, and Sankara said that if someone feeds you, then they can exact their will upon you. If someone feeds you, then they control you. And, and he had the, 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 the people of Burkina Faso to actually look inside their plates, to look at the rice that they were importing, to look at the fact that all of the food that they were consuming in Burkina Faso, most of it was actually imported in the 1980s. And he encouraged them to actually, through agrarian um, reform, through land uh, redistribution of land, through um, irrigation and fertilization, and making sure that Burkina Faso was able to produce its own food. And we realized that he wanted aid and, and, and cooperation, of course, between African countries. And he did not um, alienate Burkina Faso entirely from the need for aid. He accepted, for example, UN-assisted programs uh, aimed at tackling diseases like river blindness. But he felt that aid should be actually given on the terms of the people of Burkina Faso. That debt should not be used to control a people. That aid should help destroy the need for further aid. And I think this is something that sets Sankara apart and something that leaders in Africa today can actually look up to. How do we borrow ourselves out of debt, right? Because most of the money that we're actually lending today as African countries, most of the money that is being lent to us by our former colonial masters is used as a tool for political control. In the previous episode of this podcast, I shared how, for example, because of our high dependence of, on, on, on USAID, Uganda had to backtrack on its anti-homosexuality act in 2013 simply because we did not have the political control of our own country because we're not funding our own program. So I think it's Sankara's belief that all aid um, that puts further aid to death is welcome in Burkina Faso that actually sort of moves um, and, and, and something that African countries and African presidents can actually embrace today. Thanks, Lemo. But like, how effective was those commando policy? How effective was it for the people? Did people really like had a had a better life under like the first uh, the first years of Sankara regimes? You know, um, that's a very good question, and I think that Sankara, like every other leader, um, was it was very dynamic, was textured. So it's not all a beautiful story without any um, unsuccessful cases. But um, the one successful case that I want to talk about is the White City campaign. It's also part of the, 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 the commando program. And what Sankara wanted to do is he realized that the cities look terrible. The cities look deserted. They look 
that the situation of the people living in the towns by just looking in the city you could tell that this city didn't have life now what Sankara did he started a program of the white city mobilized people to paint all their houses white so that the cities can be organized just so that they can be order and sort of it was an urbanization program and therefore it didn't work out as well because um the cost of paint because people thought it was a ridiculous color um like simple reasons here and there but i think that what's very important about how Sankara dealt with that was not necessarily oh this project didn't fail but he realized that perhaps this is what this the white painting the city white was probably not the best way to go about it but he realized things like um pollution he realized things like um beggars on the street and how to actually take those people out of there and find a different way to look at the city and i think what um what i i actually learned from this is when a policy doesn't necessarily work it is not a reason to abandon it it's a reason to restructure it to rethink it and then apply it and i think um we see that in a lot of his policies and i think that um with the with the vaccination commando for example sankara was told that it was expected that 18,000 to 50,000 of Burkinabe children will die from missiles, from meningitis, from yellow fever. And this man, within two weeks, managed to vaccinate about 2 million children. And you can see that perhaps that one project of the White City failed, but he realized that he had another problem to tackle. And immediately after he designated those resources to something else. And I think that later on, had he had the time, he would have definitely returned back to the White City Project. And actually talking about how it was expected that so many Burkinabe children would die from meningitis, um, it just reminds me of how it was expected that Africa, uh, that COVID-19 will almost clear out the African population, similar to the same way HIV almost did, similar to the same way that Ebola did. Um, uh, so. I think that one thing that we can learn from how um, Thomas Sankara looked at the vaccination commando, we can actually implement that in our strategy against COVID-19 today. In our strategy, for example, in South Africa, getting vaccines for its old people in order to vaccinate them against the virus. And I think there's so much we can learn. There's so much we can learn to sort of move our population forward and say, if certain policies did not work, how do we deal with the imminent danger? And how do we restructure those resources to feed into something else? Thanks. Like it definitely took the state. It took the state as a as a tool, and it took the state as a tool, and immobilized the state and the all the state. Everyone from secretaries to ministers to parliamentaries, everyone was supposed to go get vaccine, but also organize their own vaccination where they where they come from. But like Sankara, like any of us, if we take power tomorrow, we'll heritage a, a broken tool. The state, yes. the state is not as functional as, as it should be. We have a lot of people inside that are more uh, busy taking uh, money than actually delivering what they're supposed to. How did Sankara deal with that state of fact? And, and I think this is some, something that Sankara managed to do very successfully, managing to eliminate the corruption that is actually associated with all these administrative and all these bureaucratic processes that are in existence within the state, managing to tackle the problem that people are actually using the state as a personal estate, as, as a tool to enrich themselves, um, using the Marxist definition that the state is actually a tool for the bourgeoisie. At the beginning of the show, we were saying uh, uh, down with, with, with the petit bourgeoisie, down with the national bourgeoisie, a small group of people who are able to amass wealth and get rich at the expense of the entire population. And I think that Sankara managed to tackle corruption First of all, using the People's Revolutionary Courts 
this was an accountability tool whereby everyone who was suspected of corruption actually came and was liable to defend himself and prove himself innocent. So our conventional justice systems tell us that um, everyone is innocent until proven guilty. But then here we see Sankara shifting burdens and telling people that actually you are all guilty until proven innocent as far as as long as you are being tried for a case uh, that's involving corruption in, in, in a public case. And I think this is something that managed to keep this, all these administrators in check. But we also see some of the policies that he embraces to actually um, concentrate wealth and to actually uh, make sure that the state was accountable to the people and the state was not increasing government spending. We see the fact that he himself as Sankara managed to reduce his salary to $450, an equivalent to $450 in our terms today. And, and we look at our presidents today who are amassing wealth. We looked at um, a former president of... Uh, for president of Sudan, Omar al-Bashir, who died with over like $300 million under his pillow uh, on, on the day that he died. But we're seeing a man who has said, I'm not taking my salary as president, but rather I'm taking my salary as uh, a captain in the army. And he's taking only an equivalent of $450 and dying and leaving a legacy of a motorcycle, only eight guitars and a grave that barely goes to show that he was a former head of state. But we also see him trying to extend this attitude to even people whom he's working with, the bureaucrats of the system. Because in, in, in 1980, what are we seeing? We are seeing people who are saying, we fought a revolution, we want to benefit from the revolution. But he's saying the revolution has to serve the people. And what are some of the things that he's saying? That you cannot travel business class as a government politician because that is now um, disadvantaging the people. So, uh, And I think he gave a very interesting illusion that whether you sit in business class or economic class, you're still all going to take off at the same time and land at the same time. And we see that he has now eliminated the large convoys that we see African leaders now having today to actually very cheap cars at, at, at the time. Instead of the Mercedes Benzes, we see them driving very um, simple and cheap cars. And here I can go back to the example of Uganda today. You see a situation where we are spending almost 600 billion as a country on just buying cars for our MPs, 300 million shillings on 500 MPs who are in the, who are in the parliament. And I think this is something that really Sankara managed to succeed at very well. And I think what's also important to realize is the fact that Sankara brought the, his administration to the people. People didn't come to Sankara for help. Sankara brought help to the people. And the one way we see um, that actually happening is how you see how he administered justice. Sankara made sure he understood, like you're saying, Olemo, that the state previously has been a tool of the bourgeois. And how he goes about it is first, he reforms the state in that he puts people that he knows to be efficient, that he puts people that will not forget of, of will not forget about people in the villages because you 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 actually realize that a lot of administrations actually cater to the people in the city people in Ogodungwe and he's just thinking about there's so many peasants in the village how do i bring about my policies to them and when you look at the policies of the vaccination commando the alpha commando the battle of the rails he took all of that to the villages and he didn't even have to like those people didn't even have to come to him for help so i think restructuring that putting people who understand the situation on the ground to be the administrators, even how he restructured law. And he said, you know what? We, the law that we currently have only serves the bourgeois. Let us put the people into the current justice system so that we have a system that caters to the people, a system that reaches to the people, and a system that understands the people. I think we can debate um, the intricacies of how that was successful or not, but I think ultimately, he brought help to people. People didn't have to come to him for help. And I think, Sia, just to add to that, there's something that Sankara managed to do very well, and that's to eliminate the cult of personality that's 
very commonly associated with leaders in the 1980s. Yes. We are seeing Mobutu Seseko, we are seeing all these leaders all over the continent. We are seeing Ufet Boni and all of these um, leaders on the continent who are making um, leadership and who are making political power all about themselves. We're seeing, for example, in, in, in Uganda and other countries where the president has to practically intervene in every single scenario, where, where, where a, a, a minister or a government official will tell you, I am not going to report my statement to the, to the police or to the minister of justice until the president actually authorizes me to do so. So we're seeing Sankara eliminating this cult of personality, saying that I do not want my picture to be in any government office. Why? Because Burkina Faso is full of many Thomas Sankaras, and I'm just one of them, right? So we are seeing him um, sort of democratizing political power, that political power can and must be used for the people. And I think this is some uh, this is an attitude that even um, dissolved and sort of dissipated into the people's revolutionary court. So we are seeing a situation where people can actually administer justice on their own. Uh, we were watching um, like a clip recently, and you're seeing students even within the universities coming up with their own revolutionary courts and holding people accountable to some of the laws, though we can discuss uh, the failures of and the demerits of that system later on. Like Olemo, taking people accountable, making sure that everyone is working. Thomas Sankara said to every bureaucrat of the state that because we are a peasant country, on Friday afternoon, you need to go and, 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 and work on your field. You need to make some agriculture because you need to be close to the people, but also we need to use the resources that we have, that, that exact land, right? But like Olemo, I want to ask you a question. How does that, how successful was it for, for real, right? Because all the ministers now suddenly have like terrible salaries. All the ministers and, and the bureaucrats now don't drive like those fancy Mercedes. You find your, you find a situation where people of Burkina Faso that were making the revolution were not enriching themselves. Yes. For, for the most passionate of them, like it was an obvious things to do. And we can understand how they were in that volunty to transform that society. But for the, for the, let's say for the most established of them, for the most rooted of them, what it means is a lot of loss of privilege, right? And those privilege that you will find similar profession have in Ivory Coast, in Mali, in Senegal, where people enrich themselves day after day. And if you stay here and you're broke and all the time, like you need to have a bonus or something like this in your salary, that bonus is taking away for a developmental project. Yes. How successful was that for, for real? I think that um, I was just reading somewhere as I was doing my research that Sankara's assassination was the wrath of the elite. Because you see this man coming to power, he implements all these policies. We understand that he does not have enough capital. He's not borrowing from the World Bank. He's not borrowing for the IMF. So the money that he's taking is the money that in the previous administration was, was filling up the checks of the elites, was filling up the checks of um, government officials. And now he's taking that to develop people. And as much as, and as good as that is, we know that the bourgeoisie is mad. The bourgeoisie is angry. As he's redistributing the land, he's taking taking land from the elite and giving it to the peasants. And we cannot, and I think someone was saying that we cannot expect them not to avenge themselves, not in as much as the development is going forward, but his assassination to an extent can be argued that it was the wrath um, of, of the bourgeoisie. And to an extent, when you see how Mali particularly was how Mali was sort of arranging and very much involved in, in the assassination of Thomas Sankara. You see that um, these elite were actually contemplating for that. So I think that in terms of him using the money within the country, the resources within the country, re redistributing them equally, he was quite successful. But the consequences of that was that he had to feel um, the wrath of the elite. And ultimately, with his assassination, they came for him. I I think to a very large extent, Sankara was too revolutionary for his time. 
people were just not ready um, for Sankara. And, 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 and sometimes I'm wondering whether even in the 21st century, we can manage to go with a leader like Sankara. Because if you look at a person who is now alienating people, who is now telling them, because the common view is that I am sweating, that as a bureaucrat, I am doing a lot of work. And so I deserve certain rewards. So I deserve to be compensated in a certain way. And Sankara is saying, no, we're a poor country and we need to work together. And I think this is something that alienated Sankara. And as Sia said, uh, brought him to the brink of assassination and ensured that eventually um, counter-revolutionary forces developed from the national elite that was forming around the, uh, the ungratified um, bourgeoisie, the ungratified bureaucrats who felt like they were not able to have a proper share of the national cake and today we see that the reason why most of the leaders in africa are actually able to consolidate their place in power is through patronage and sankara was not for patronage he's saying i'm not going to pay you to do your job as as, as a citizen of burkina faso as a, in, in the land of upright men i'm not going to pay you to do your job do your job according to the requirements according to the amount of money that we actually have as a people and i think this is something the, the lack of political patronage at the time is something that really um, brought the revolution the revolution to his knees and ensured that effectively it was eliminated we need to we need to speak of of that fatigue we need to speak of that fatigue because here we address uh, an audience that is really willing to radical change people are, are willing to see radical change because the situation is difficult. But like, how does, how does that fatigue come to be? How does that fatigue come to play? Because uh, we know from every revolution, whatever from Lenin to Sankara or the dead in Ethiopia, we know that at some point, like the populations have a difficulty to, to follow the path, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, was it really the, the role of, of Burkina Faso people to build railway? Was it really the role of Burkina Faso people to transform their farm rather than import their rice. What what do we do as as radical people of of that fatigue of the fact that people like their small comfort? People will be happy uh, broke uh, with. Um, no, this doesn't work. People would be happy. People would be happy in a small position that have like not not really great future and and complain about the situation of the country rather than actually go and work for the for a proper change. What do we do of that fatigue? I think we spoke about African countries being dependent on foreign powers. And I think the issue that you're coming at right there also speaks to African people, the proletariat, the people on the ground, being dependent on the administration to do things for them. And we see that that has always been the culture. Before Sankara came in, we see that the Burkinabe people or the people of the town, they're sort of waiting on the government to do things. And of course, the government is not effective. The governance, um, the governance is very weak. So they are not getting that, but they're sort of accustomed to idea that it is the government that must provide this for us. But when Tamas Sankara comes, he says, yes, I must provide this for you, but you need to help me. You need to help me in creating that. So I think that it is sort of that ideal of getting like, that the, the, the people's dependency on the state that sort of leads to that fatigue. And the other thing that I wanted to add is to an extent, some to an extent the counter-revolutionary forces were fabricated by the elites because the elites have lost their land. They have lost all of these things. So they create situations that actually stop the revolution because they're they seeing that these these the, the Bokinaba people are revolutionary. They're having a, a revolutionary leader. They are destined for great things. And what does that mean for the bourgeois? It means I'm going to keep losing my land. It means I'm going to keep losing my money. And if I don't leave the country if i stay in the country it means that by the end of sankara's reign if he had eight more years if he had 16 more years there would be no bourgeois all bourgeois would have lost everything that they had so they sort of added to the frustration of um of sankara's policies and as you'll see within his last year you're seeing that there are a lot of policies that actually go wrong and it's because yes there is the fatigue 
but to the bourgeois, the elite, and some even some uh, some other personnel within the military who are leading with Sankara are creating situations where it's very hard for Sankara to lead, and sort of the revolution is counted. I understand that Sankara legacy like go uh, to his people and and how like he tried to transform his society, and that's why we wanted to speak about that first. But like in order to in order to liberate the people in their mind, you also need to liberate the economy, and and liberating the economy doesn't only have to do with Burkina Faso. It also have to do with the neighbors of Burkina Faso. You have to do invest in Burkina Faso. You have to do with what does Burkina Faso what does Burkina Faso trade? So like Olemo, like can you tell me like a bit more about like his foreign policy? How did he manage? to to be a revolutionary in a in a really anti-revolutionary environment so, so i think it's interesting when you actually try and analyze um, sankara's foreign policy because you see a person who is an anti-imperialist at the core anti-imperialist a pan-african uh with his own view of what socialism should be and we see how this is alienating him from a lot of people but then we, we start on, on on his view on foreign aid uh, sankara believed that anyone should be able to contribute to the development of Burkina Faso, essentially. And, and this is why I think sometimes we ignore the fact that Sankara was actually not just a revolutionary and not just a utopia, a person who believed in sort of a socialist utopia, but it was actually a person who thought that, let me be pragmatic in my approach to aid. In case you anyone, uh, whether you're a capitalist, whether you're a socialist, as long as you are for the sovereignty and you're for the development of Burkina Faso, you're welcome to trade with us. Right. And I think this is something that really informed uh, his foreign policy. You see him being part of the Nana Light movement. You see him supporting Cuba. You see him going to all of these conferences in Nicaragua, in China, in the Soviet Union. And you see him supporting even um, a legacy that we can actually debate, the independence of the, of, of the Saharan Democratic Republic, uh, of Western Sahara, their independence from Morocco. And, and, and you see some of these... Um, manifesting in the dynamics of the organization of african unity uh, if eventually him being a critique in the late, in, in the early 80s in the early days of his rule in in 1984, he, he did an interview and he was being asked about the current crisis that actually existed in, in the organization of african unity and he identified the problem he said that there had been a problem that was emerging of unity mongering of telling us let's unite as a continent let's unite as a continent but then he expressed that the people of africa were actually tired of a group of bureaucrats going to addis ababa coming up with resolutions that would actually never act on and you see this is sankara being criti critical of the organization of african unity but you also see him attacking the likes of mobutu seseko who believe that we should have an all black um, a league of black africans right um, to alienate white africans at the time and i think this is something that's very special that africa is actually a continent that has both black africans and white africans and we should have an organization that's actually one colored an organization that is serving towards african unity and he makes a very powerful statement he says that there is only one color the color of african unity and even we see this pan-africanist ideal coming up in his stance on anti uh anti-apartheid struggle that was actually happening in south africa he categorizes south africa straight up as racist and he tells them and, and he takes very drastic actions in principle towards expressing and making very unequivocal the position of uh, Burkina Faso on um, South Africa. For example, he, he denounces French support for, for, for the uh, racist uh, apartheid regime in South Africa. When President Mitterrand of, of, of France visited him in, in, in Burkina Faso, you remember him being very critical of the man and telling him to his face, we do not approve of what you're doing, we do not approve of your support of the apartheid regime in South Africa, and we as the people of Burkina Faso are not going to accept that. We also see 
um, the, the 1984 Olympic Games. Sankara does not go for the 1984 Olympic Games in, in, in the US. Why? Because he says that the people who are in the 1984 Olympic Games, the, the British who are supporting the apartheid regime in South Africa, are actually working side to side with racist politics, with racist people. And he's saying that as we, we are the people of Burkina Faso, even in the future, as long as there is racism in South Africa, as long as there is apartheid in South Africa, we are actually not going to support any such, uh, we are not going to support any such uh, in initiatives. And that we see um, Sankara's foreign policy being informed by the need to create an independent African state, but that's actually dependent on the independence of other African countries. And we've seen this rhetoric going on in the 80s, going on in the 60s and 70s with the likes of Kwame Nkrumah. And, and, and we, we see him now with a very, much, very famous speech in 1987 um, saying that we need to form the Addis Ababa Club, which I think is something that needs to be discussed today. That Debt as it is, is meant to subjugate Africa. That debt as it is, is meant to put Africa in the control of the West, is meant to have African countries answering to the West because these are the same people who colonized us. And he's saying, let's form an Addis Ababa club. An Addis Ababa club that is a united front against debt. That we are not going to pay this debt because we do not actually come up with this debt. This debt, uh, our economies, the state during colonialism was actually managed by the colonialists. And he's saying now with the Addis Ababa Club, we are going to say we are not good, we are, we're going to refuse to pay the debt that is actually that we actually owe to the Western countries because if we do not pay them, they're not going to die. But if you pay the debt that we owe to the West, we are actually going to die. And I see this um, informing Sankara's uh, foreign policy um, going into into the eighties. What's also interesting about Sankara is he doesn't cower in the face of the neocolonialists. You see him get um, to the U.S., you see him go to address the, the, the United Nations. And right before the United States says, oh, we want to see your speech. We just have to make sure that everything is okay. And Sankara understands how the United States think. He understands how the neocolonialists think. He gives him the, um, his speech and they actually tackle it. And there in the speech, Sankara has written words like neocolonialists. He's calling out the United States to be... Um, to be in support of a racist, um, a racist and a, a, a state that is against um, the human, the human dignity of the Palestinian people, and they ask him like, "Oh, Mr. Sankara, please change these words as you're going to address the United Nations. Uh, you could use slightly gentler words." But you see, this man tell the United States that you know what in the White House he tells them. I am not changing it. I am saying it as it, he does not cower in the face of the neocolonizer. He does not cower in the face of white supremacists. He gets there. And even though they denied him um, a visit to Florida, they denied him a visit to the White House, he still stands there and he still says, I will say what I want to say. And he gets to the United Nations and he basically speaks and he says, Particularly to the United States, he says, the oppression of the Palestinian people continues to thrive because Israel is protected by its because um, Israel is protected by its mother nature or um, being the United States. I would even add to that, that you actually don't go to the White House. You don't go to the, to the UN headquarters when you get invited. You go first, mm -hmm. after being denied in Florida to meet with Afro-Americans, mm -hmm. you go first to Harlem. And in Harlem, you make that famous speech, Black Harlem is our White House. Yes. And that's why he really broke any protocols. The Americans are not ready to have uh, such high level politician there. He will, he will be uh, pleased to listen like to the reception that he had there. And a lot of leadership will, uh, will, will welcome that, that gesture. Black Harlem is our White House. 
And even in his approach, even in his in his foreign policy, you see him have a spirit of Pan-Africanism, a spirit of negritude, saying that you may be Africans in diaspora, we may be Africans on the continent, but what matters is we understand the situation that we have one common oppressor, and at that time it was the white man. And we're not necessarily debating um the morality of whether it's right or wrong, but we're debating um the situation on the ground given colonialism, given slavery, and he gets to Black Harlem, he speaks the realities of the black people, and I think that overall you see that um, Thomas Ankara's um, foreign policy is not based on what what interest he gains, but it's based on the truth that he believes. It's based on his anti-imperialist truth that he believes, his anti-racist truth that he believes, and you see it with every endeavor when he when he advocates for um, the Pacific Islands, when he advocates for some countries in the Caribbean and saying that the United States is funding it's funding rebels who are persecuting, who are prosecuting people and doing unjust things, yet it claims to be a securer of democracy. Sankara stands there and speaks the truth, no matter what it will cost him. He speaks the truth, no matter the fact that he knows that uh, at a point when he needs aid, he will not be given aid because of the words that he says. He says them regardless because it's the truth that he believes. I, th I think on, on top of calling a sped, a sped, and not a big spoon, uh, that, <laughs> that, that, that we see actually an attitude that so many of our African leaders lack today, we see the role of Sankara, even within his own West African territory. We see the rela relationship between him and J.J. Rawlings in Ghana. Mm -hmm. We see the fact that Ghana and, 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 and Burkina Faso have this sort of relationship whereby Ghanaians are going to Burkina Faso without the acknowledgement of borders. And, and he's saying that, you know, he's saying that as, as a country, these borders are all colonial, that these borders are actually just for administrative purposes, but beyond that, they have no significance. And I think this is an attitude that as Pan-Africanists, we need to embrace that, that Ghanaians could move to, to Burkina Faso, celebrate some of these events with them, do the mourning with them, and, and creating this relationship. We see the role of Libya in, in Burkina Faso. We see Gaddafi visit, paying a couple of visits in Burkina Faso and actually giving a lot of aid and sustaining the economy of Burkina Faso. But we also see something very interesting. And we look at how Sankara handled the border dispute between Mali and Burkina Faso in 1985. So you see that there's a long-standing border dispute. We see that there's actually a war that takes place that we talked about earlier in the show. And then there's a veto because back then there was the existence of the West African Monetary Union, the UMOA, the West African Monetary Union. And what does Sankara do? Sankara lifts the veto. He says, okay, Mali can actually join the, um, the West African Monetary Union despite the fact that we are having all these border disputes, that despite our own national interest, we are stronger together, that we can do it together. And I think just going back to the 1987 speech, it's very interesting what Sankara told them. He told these people that if you do not form the Addis Ababa Club and all say, no, we are not going to pay the debts to a white man, you are not going to find me here in the next Afri Organization of African Unity yes. Conference. And this is interesting because Sankara then prophesies his own death. He tells these people, you know, I know how I'm going to die. He tells them, yes, <laughs> that if we do not come together and unite and present one strong voice as a continent, they are going to pick us off one by one. You need to have some serious sense of clarity to announce your own death. Yes. <laughs> yes. And you see, just October, a few months down the road, the man has been picked off by the French because anti-imperialism, anti-neocolonialism, anti-paying debt, you know how that ends up. And today I think that's what's lacking in Africa, that we do not have a strong voice on the global um, on the global stage, in global diplomacy, that we cannot control ourselves. We do not have economic freedom because we're not presenting one united voice. Sankara told us that as united Africa have no enemies. And if there's one artist that I've spoke about it, it's definitely Fela Kuti yes. with his song, Water Get No Enemies, that we're going to listen to right now and get back to this debate.
what are you going to do? To Bafesebe, oh Milomalo. If you want cook soup, now what are you going to do? To Bangbono, oh Milero. If your head is hot, now what are you going to do? To Bafesebe, oh Milomalo. Child, they grow water can go easy. <laughs> if water kill your child, now what are you going to me back, mama, well, oh, me not no malo. Oh, no, no. 